Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Guy Plint, professor at Western University with over 30 years experience. He is an expert on Cretaceous rocks of Western Canada and is well known for the Dunvegan stratigraphic framework that has stood the test of time. We'll be talking about two of Guy Plint's scientific articles. One titled Sequence Stratigraphy and Paleogeography of a Simonian Deltaic Complex, the Dunvegan and Lower Kaskapau Formations in Subsurface and Outcrop, Alberta and British Columbia, Canada. And a favorite of mine, Non-Marine Sequence Stratigraphy, Up-Dip Expression of Sequence Boundaries and Systems Tracks in a High-Resolution Framework, Simonian Dunvegan Formation, Alberta Foreland Basin, Canada. Some highlights include discussing how marine and non-marine stratigraphy correlate. We're rocking out today with Guy Plint. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Good morning, Guy, and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Good morning, Maureen. Thanks for inviting me. So you've done a lot of work on the Dunvegan and sequence stratigraphy over the years. So I thought that would be a really interesting conversation to have with you. You developed a sequence stratigraphic framework to clarify the relationship of straddle stacking patterns and phases to their controlling variables of both accommodation changes and sediment supply. So the Denvegan framework consisted of 10 ALO members. How important is it to recognize these ALO members? Uh, well, it depends what you're trying to do. If you're doing regional kind of GSC-style outcrop mapping, that's uh, based on lithostratigraphic criteria. So um, worrying about all the ALA members is not important because you're deciding how a, uh, a shaley formation changes upwards into a sandy formation. However, if you're trying to work out the depositional history of the formation, um, since the stacking pattern, the paleogeography, the distribution of sand bodies, the distributions of valley fills, then it's critically important to know how each piece of the puzzle relates in time. And so the other member boundaries give you a time framework. It's a good point to how you're using it, because if you want to figure out the depositional environment and really predict where you're going to find good reservoir, you need to know those other members. It, just knowing sand versus shell is not enough information. That's certainly true, yes. So how was each other member identified? Well, I followed on the coattails of my good friend, Janik Bhattacharya. Um, his PhD study at McMaster um, was the first to do um, a regional um, allostratigraphic study of the Dunvegan, at least one that was public. And I know oil company people have looked at it. But Janik used regionally mappable marine flooding surfaces to define progradational stacks of deltaic shingles. And I took his study, which was entirely subsurface, and I followed uh, his Alamember boundaries northwards and westwards right up to outcrop. And those correlations showed that the, the flooding surfaces that Janet had recognized were very robust and they could be traced into outcrop where they passed eventually into um, lacustrine sort of flooding intervals in the coastal plain deposits, which were the kind of up dip equivalent to the marine deltas. So um, in addition, we found that um, those marine or lacustrine flooding surfaces were uh, very close to or even merge with major interflue paleosols. 
Um, those paleosols mark subaerial unconformities that formed throughout the falling stage and low stand of the sea level cycles. And then the unconformities were gradually buried during transgression. So the other members are not exactly equivalent to the classical exon sequences in that the bounding surfaces down dip are marine flooding surfaces, whereas up dip, they merge into subaerial unconformities. Um, this is a pragmatic approach to the long-standing problem with the classical exon sequence stratigraphy is, is how do you recognize a subaerial unconformity when it's going down dip into marine rocks? There's nothing, there's nothing there. So uh, it's not a purely time stratigraphy, but it, it's better than nothing and it works. And that was one of the things we looked at quite a bit was the flooding surface going from marine to the coastal plain, tracing that same surface back. Um, and one of the main challenges was understanding the relationship between the coastal plain and marine facies and the system tracks to identify this. So you recognize there were four main marine system tracks. What did you see as key to each of them? It's kind of tricky. In the field, each marine system track looks much the same in terms of sedimentary faces. They, they're all basically sandier up, shoaling up with progradational cycles. The, the key to it is to, is to recognize the stacking pattern. And of course, you can't do that in outcrop. So you have, to, you have to map these things out in all the well logs in a three-dimensional grid. Um, when you've done all that, what we found was that in any given alum member, which consists usually of, of a handful of, of, of so-called shingles, these are smaller sequences, this is Janik's terminology, those shingles are organized in some kind of predictable pattern. And typically, once you get above the initial marine transgressive surface, you can usually find one or perhaps two of these sort of smaller packages, which Janik called shingles. They can be traced up dip into coeval alluvial strata. So the early part of each alamember has a non-marine up dip equivalent, but the younger shingles uh, offlap seawards and uh, toplap against the overlying subaerial unconformity. And those offlapping shingles form the falling stage system tract and also the low stand. Um, in a few sequences, we can see that the, the late stage shingles show a downward shift in facies and a downward shift in onlap, which is kind of classical exon criteria for recognizing a sequence boundary. For example, alum members I and E show this. So they suggest that there is a distinct relative sea level fall at the end of those alum members. But in other examples, they simply show continuous offlap against an overlying uh, unconformity until the regression was finally terminated by regional transgression. So you can't always recognize the kind of classical exon type changes in facies and, and onlap that mark the low stand from the falling stage. So really looking for the offlap versus the onlap will help identify the younger and the older um, shingles within each alo member. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So alternatively, you also recognize some non-marine systems tracks. You had a channel-dominated, lacustrine-dominated, and paleoso-dominated systems tract. What were the characteristics of each of these ones? Yeah, well, we, we got kind of excited about this in the early days, and we thought this would be useful to try and recognize these distinct non-marine systems tracks. Um, perhaps we got a little bit too excited about it. But anyway, uh, what we saw was that uh, the first, what we called the um, channel-dominated systems tract, they're usually filled with um, vertically and laterally amalgamated uh, point bar deposits. 
which were laid down in, in obviously meandering channels with well-developed lateral accretion surfaces. And those meandering channels were confined to the valleys. We could see these up on the Peace River. These uh, big valleys are exposed in cross-section, and we, we spent a couple of summers with a boat going up and down, looking at all these valleys that are sliced through by the Peace River. So you could see the geometry of the field very, very clearly. We thought that because the channel sand bodies were highly amalgamated, we interpreted that to reflect a relatively low accommodation rate. So that's where the, tame, the name came from. The channels were clearly confined to the valleys. They couldn't escape. So they, they were just combing backwards and forwards and reworking the top of each point bar. But once the valley filled, we get into what was a clearly a very different system. The valleys filled up and then they started to flood out over the interflutes. And once you got above the valley fill, the sediments were what we call the lacustrine-dominated high accommodation system strike. Here, the meandering rivers disappeared completely, and instead we got a succession of sediments that were deposited in, in wetlands, there were poorly drained soils, there were shallow lakes, uh, shallow lacustrine deltas, little mouth bars, and cutting across all this were these little narrow ribbon sandstones, which uh, we thought represented the fill of very low gradient anastomose river systems. So everything there looked soggy and wet, very low gradient with the groundwater table close to or even above the land surface. So we thought that represented rapid generation of accommodation. The third systems tract, as we went upwards through these sort of wet, soggy, lakey sediments, there was a, a change. And towards the top of each alamember, we noticed that these more laminated organic rich sediments changed to amalgamating stacks of paleosols with evidence for protracted clay alluviation, oxidation, perturbation. And so we thought that that assemblage of very soil-dominated systems must be recording a very low rate of vertical accommodation because the entire delta system was in the process of changing from aggradational to a progradational stacking pattern in response to sea level stopping rising and beginning falling, if you like. So that's, that's how those three were, were designated. And that seems to be a fairly robust facies differentiation. You see that in each of the sequences or each of the alamandas. You really tied nicely there how each system's tract had a different accommodation space leading to the deposition of the, the different sediments. So it's a good way to visualize it as you're talking there. <laughs> Did you find these non-marine system tracts were helpful in tracing the marine transgressive and ravine mid-surfaces updip into the coastal plain environments? Um, I, I would say yes. In my very early and ignorant days of Dunvegan fieldwork back in the 1980s, I, I had even then noticed that the alluvial successions varied between darker, more organic-rich sediments that evidently were subaqueous deposits. And they changed or alternated with much paler, oxidized, very structureless, horrible, boring-looking mudstones, actually, that were clearly some kind of paleosol. But it was not until Paul McCarthy joined me for his postdoc work, and he looked in detail at these horrible white paleosols from a micromorphological point of view with a lot of thin sections, it suddenly became clear that the, the master alamember bounding, bounding surfaces um, were, were at the top of these very mature paleosols. And also that the, 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 the very mature stacks of paleosols, um, or the top of them, I should say, marked the boundary between these low accommodation soily sediments below 
and these much more stratified, high accommodation, kind of lakey sediments above. So uh, that, that, again, suddenly made sense. Once Paul had put his finger on the, on the sequence boundaries and said, here is the break in the succession, um, it all made sense. In fact, this work, one of the other previously unexplained observations I had made was that in a few of the kind of lakey mudstone units, there was quite a lot of bioturbation, whereas most of those lake units did not have much bioturbation. And then when we looked at those in the context of where all the sequence boundaries were, we suddenly realized that the, the very bioturbated lakes always lay just above the master paleosols. And so we were led to infer that early in the transgression, some brackish water penetrated up onto the coastal plain and had brought various salt-loving critters with it, wormy things and perhaps some arthropods. And they burrowed around in perhaps saline lakes for a while. And then later on, as regression set in, those lakes became fully freshwater again, and all the burrowing creatures disappeared. So again, it all sort of made sense. So if you find the paleosols, it was really the thin sections that let you know where the unconformity was. And then the unconformity was at the top of the paleosols. So if you looked at, for example, then bacon G, it would have a paleosol at the top with an unconformity in the um, coastal plain area. Yep, that's absolutely true. The um, Paul was able to, he had a, a cunning technique of, uh, we use actually electrical junction boxes and we hammered these things into the outcrop. And of course the Dunvegan up on the Peace River is unconsolidated, so you can dig it out with a trowel. So he took dozens and dozens of these box samples. We brought them back to the lab, dried them out, impregnated them with resin and sliced them up and made these very large thin sections. And he would string the thin sections together to make a complete um, profile of each paleosol. And uh, you could see, even in a thin section, there would be a, a sharp, irregular erosion surface. And you would say, there's, there's your unconformity. And below that, you have these very different pedogenic features, evidence of, of pedoturbation and, and pedorelics and alluvial features. And immediately above the contact, you would have a completely stratulous siltstone that was rapidly abrading once the floodplain was re-inundated by new sediment. So the, the, the distinction is stark, you know, but in the field, you can't really see it. You need thin sections. Yeah, I really need to zoom in. Yeah. So the transgressive and ravinement surfaces on the marine side, very similarly um, deposited based on relative sea level rising and falling. How would you say the sea level rise and fall on the marine side ties in with what you just talked about on the coastal side? Well, if we deal with the coastal side first, I mean, the, the, the landward side, the changing accommodation rate on the coastal plain is expressed in the high and low accommodation facies tracks that I discussed earlier. So um, diminishing accommodation rate um, is recorded, of course, by the stacked and amalgamated paleosols that record vertical accommodation, which is gradually slowing down to nothing. Then once relative sea level fall sets in, the river systems appear to have gradually incised their beds to produce what were initially rather small valleys that extended across the top of the offlapping falling stage deposits. And they also extended landwards across the transgressive and high stand deposits. Now we can see that initially valleys were very narrow, only a few hundred meters, but over time the rivers, as they meander around within the valleys, they nibble away at the valley walls and they gradually widen them. And in some instances, we have valleys that are four or five kilometers wide. I should add that, that when I mapped the valley systems, which took quite a while, um, it turned out that they could be traced for up to about 330 kilometers inland from the low stand shorelines. 
And after a while, I realized that was a bit of a problem because um, the depth of the valleys, which was typically of the order of 20, 25 meters, um, combined with sort of geometric considerations of stacking patterns, suggested that the relative sea level uh, had fallen by something like that same amount, 20, 25 meters, something like that. Now, if you compare that with modern valley systems that have responded to Pleistocene sea level changes, there, the, there seems to be a relationship that if you had a sea level fall of 20 or 30 meters, you'd expect that the nick point to migrate up dip along the valley for something like 20 or 30 kilometers. You know? So a meter of change translates into about a kilometer of lateral incision. But the problem is, if we had valleys that were only 20 or 30 meters deep, they shouldn't be 200 kilometers or 300 kilometers long. There's just There wasn't enough down dip downstream change to trigger that much incision. So we had to resort to another um, idea, which was that some of the incision of the rivers was a response to changes in the ratio of discharge to sediment level. Uh, it's well known that if you, if you change the amount of rainfall relative to the amount of sediment available, then rivers have more energy available and they tend to carve down into their channels. So we speculated that some sort of new static mechanism which could have been glacial or hydro used to see, was operating at the downstream end. And that was coupled in time with changing rainfall uh, over the Cordillera, up in the headwaters of the Dunbagan system. And perhaps both of those which were paced by some kind of Melanchthon orbital cycles. So that's a, a fun thing to speculate about. Whether we'll ever prove it, I, I don't know. That's, there's work continuing in that area. Uh, if we can continue in the marine realm, then relative sea level fall is expressed as off-lapping deltaic shingles, each of which top-laps against the master subaerial disconformity. And uh, of course, that subaerial surface is then modified by transgressive erosion. Um, in, in the nearshore areas, those deltaic shingles commonly have sharp-based or forced regressive shore-faced sandstones with the gutter casts on the bottom. Those are very common. As you go seawards, however, those sharp bay sandstones tend to break up. They lose their definition because the accommodation gain becomes greater as you go seawards. And the single wave scarred erosion surface below the sandstone splits up into uh, an array of scow surfaces, which is expressed as a stack of gutter casts in the sediments. So different expressions in landward and seaward situations. It was really interesting to hear how you talked about the scale of the river. And that it was so long, just explaining it by sea level rise and fall wasn't sufficient. And in your paper, you compared it to the Mississippian River. So just a great uh, analog to use for checking the scale, which was a clever way of looking at it. So the key surfaces you also saw in outcrops. And you mentioned that the flooding surfaces and the lacustrine deposits fell kind of within the package instead of being a directly traceable surface. What does having a range for a surface mean instead of having a set point for the interpretations? The thing to remember is that um, the core control is confined mainly to down dip sandy faces. Um, and as you go up dip, the sediments become muddy and the sands get thin, so nobody in their right mind caused them. So core becomes very scarce, and we have to rely on tracing the marine flooding surfaces on, on well logs uh, further or further up dip. As you know, the logs have a, a limited vertical resolution. So when you're trying to trace a surface with a precision of, of decimeters, it gets rather difficult. In outcrop, we can define surfaces precisely if there are clear faces changes. And the problem is, is linking the outcrop 
to the well logs because typically the nearest well log is usually about 10 kilometers away from outcrop because the, the formation disappears into casing as you go up into, into outcrop. So there's always a big jump from the first uh, outcrop to the last well. So broad correlations show that you know, you're going to know that somewhere within a sort of one, two, three meter interval in the coastal plain, there must be the equivalent of the marine transgressive surface. But putting, putting your finger right on that surface in a stack of the fish strand deposits is really not possible. Uh, but that, of course, is no surprise. If you think about it, um, the shoreline hasn't crossed the coastal plain, so there's no rebeamment surface, no wave-eroded surface. And instead, what we see is that the water table has risen on the landward side, which, of course, is linked to sea level. Um, so there may be a gradual upward change, say, from a coal or a wetland to a, to a shallow lake, which we probably think reflects the marine transgression. But there's never a single hard surface you can point to um, as being exactly equivalent to the marine surface. Um, of course, the physical processes are not the same, so we should not expect the surfaces to be the same either. But you can put a ballpark you know, finger and say, well, somewhere in this meter of mud is where the marine transgression would have been in time, as it were. Yeah, and if you think about crop, you really can pinpoint things to the centimeter scale, where, oh, yeah. as you said, well logs, it's to the meter scale. So by the time you get it onto your logs and your petrophysics and your maps, you've lost it anyways, right? So, <laughs> yep, yep. So you mapped out the progradational limit of the shore face sandstones, the approximate transgressive limit of the marine shoreline, which highlighted where the delta front sandstones were within the Dunbagan. And you did this for ALA members H, G, F, and E. What did you use to define these limits? Well, I, I followed Janik Bhattacharya's example there. Um, mapping the seaward limits of the sandstones is quite easy. And of course, it's based on the gamma ray log response. Um, Janik had done this in his thesis where he, I think it was he used the two meter kind of clean sand isolate, a sort of API of about 70 or 80, something like that. On the gamma ray log, and that he, he he used that to approximate the progradational limit of the delta front, and I adopted a similar approach. Um, perhaps we placed our shorelines a, a little bit seaward of the real shoreline, because um, you never quite know where the last route is, of course. And you know, even if you have core control, the transgressive erosion, you know, typically nibbles off the top of the, the seaward part of each delta package anyway. So we will never know exactly how far the shoreline. You know where you could go and lie on the beach and sunbathe got to, but broadly speaking, I'd say that the paleogeographic maps that Janik and I have made um, approximate the coastal geography to within you know plus or minus five five kilometers, something like that. So those are fairly fairly confident maps. Mapping the transgressive limits is rather more tricky. Um, Janik didn't do a lot of this because he never got far enough up dip to get into the coastal plain, but. What I was what I was doing was following what I called the transgressive mud log signature, which was you know a wiggle on the gamma ray log that sat above the flooding surface, the marine flooding surface that marked the base of each alamander. And as you go up dip, you can see that that simple upward shoaling log signature from mud to sand suddenly changes into a sort of spiky, raggedy, raggedy log signature, which I interpreted to uh, mark the transition into the coastal plain sediments where you have a random intercalation of sandstones and mudstones deposited in you know, channels and splays and lakes and things. So that transition zone from a single simple marine signature to a kind of raggedy coastal plain signature could be mapped uh, in all the cross sections for every alamander, but 
my my well density was not super dense because it was a is a regional study, but I would say the uncertainty on those transgressive limits was something like ten kilometers. I would say, um, and again, that's not surprising if you look at any transgressing um, marine coast. You go down, look at the Mississippi Delta where bits are being flooded. You know, there's a very irregular boundary between terrestrial sediments, bays, lagoons, and, and, and the marine shoreline. So even on a modern, going on Google Earth and looking at a modern transgressive shoreline, it's very hard to put your finger on where the edge of the sea is. And, and in the marine, and in the, sorry, in the, in the rock record, it's of course proportionally more difficult still. But um, the maps made sense. You know, when you map these transgressive and regressive limits, you see a progressive basinward shift of, of both limits as the Holden Vegan system regresses and then a progressive landward shift as they transgress. So it all broadly made sense. The maps are really fantastic. Great paleogeography starting place from a regional perspective. And, um, you know, hearing that you used log signature to, to define that just brings the point that in Den Vegan, there are such good log signatures for channels and shore faces and coastal plains. And hearing that you utilize those is inspiring to keep doing that. So when you took these depositional maps and overlaid them on the sandstone isopack owl members, it revealed that there was a thin isopack over the coastal plain in FGMH, but then a thick one in owl member E. So how come so little sediment, um, particularly sand, was deposited on the coastal plain? Well, that's that was very interesting. These changing isopack patterns came as quite a revelation to me. And it didn't really hit me until I'd finished all the correlations and all the outcrop work, um, which was about 14 years of work. <laughs> Once I'd figured out the subsurface grid, tied in about 100 outcrops all around the edge of the basin and made the maps. And, you, you know, as you know, the, the programs like Surfer can make a map in about three seconds that summarizes work you've taken a decade to, to assemble. And it suddenly became obvious that the lower Dunvegan alamembers, in fact, all the way down to, to J, uh, up to alamember F, have this very strongly sigmoidal geometry. And in fact, it, it reminded me of the famous Monty Python sketch. I don't know if you remember this, but they interview a, a mysterious lady called Anne Elk who discourses on her theory about dinosaurs. And eventually they persuade her to tell them what the theory is. And she says, well, um, the dinosaurs were very, very thin at one end. And very, very fat in the middle and very, very thin at the other end. And that was her theory. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so in fact, this, this theory describes the geometry of the lower Dunvegan very well too. Um, so the very thin updip end indicates that the, the system was really dominated by offlap and that um, each marine transgression crept up onto the, onto the previous delta plane and, and flooded it. But it produced a little skinny wedge of sediment, typically no more than 20 meters thick going down to zero up dip usually. So what it told us was that most of the accommodation was down dip because in that water-filled space in the pro-delta area, that's where most of the sediment ended up and it, and it produced stacks of deltas up to about 100 meters thick. So what it told me was the up dip part in the Northwest was not subsiding, almost, almost not at all. There's a bit of isostatic loading and subsidence due to the sediment accumulation, but there was no clear fluctual subsidence. So if there's lack of substance up this, there's nowhere to store the sediment. So most of it bypasses across the delta plane and ends up in the sea. So that was a very intriguing observation. But that all changed when we mapped Alamember E. E is different. It's, it's, it's skinny in the middle, 
and it thickens up into the marine pro-delta area, just as you'd expect. But if you follow it far up there, up into the British Columbia, across the border from Alberta, it starts to thicken again. And the alluvial sediments thicken to about 80 meters adjacent to the foothills. So clearly the pattern changed, because if you look at Alamember F, it's, you know, it's a, a few meters thick. It's very, very skinny. And suddenly there's Alamember E on top, tens of meters thick. So when we look at the facies, there's no evidence that the, the alluvial facies had changed into something like a huge alluvial fan building topographic relief. So the thickening we could only explain in terms of subsidence, not upbuilding of the topographic surface. So it seemed that in Alamember E, a new phase of flexural subsidence started in, in, in that time, which triggered alluvial aggradation up there. And the rivers were furiously trying to fill in this new space uh, in order to keep transporting sediment down dip. So, of course, they have to fill the updip space before they can deliver any sediment to the sea. Um, when we continued mapping, if you go up into Alamembers D, uh, C, B, and A, they're rather skinny, the upper part of the Dunvegan. And you can't differentiate those individual Alamembers far up on the coastal plain. They're too skinny. But what we can do is we can map the top of A and the top of E. So collectively, A, B, C, D can be mapped. And when you do that, you can see they form a, an even more spectacular wedge that is up to about 100 meters thick uh, in the uplift region in British Columbia, and it thins dramatically down onto the delta plain. So we can see that in, in that late Dunvegan time, there was a kind of flexural moat with a sort of arcuate shape that extended something like 200 kilometers out from the present deformation front. Um, if you then map uh, above the Dunvegan up into the basal Cascapau, which is a mostly marine unit, and Cascapau and Blackstone are the same thing. What you see there is that there's an even more spectacular thickening. The Cascapau is a very prominent wedge that gets up to something like 900 meters thick in, in northeastern British Columbia. And the other intriguing thing is when you look at the, the strike of the flexural depicent, if you look at the, the trend of the strike lines, uh, what you see is that in Alamember E, which is the very beginning of subsidence, the, the, the isopack or the isoliths, sorry, the isopack lines trend sort of north-northeast, south-southwest. And then you go into Alamember D to A above, they trend north-northwest, south-southeast. And then you get into the Cascapau, they trend northwest-southeast. So they rotate 90 degrees anticlockwise in the space of probably less than a million years. And that seems to me to reflect a major change in the distribution and timing of tectonic loading through time. So early on in Dunvegan time, we can see that the, the tectonic load was way to the north in northeastern British Columbia. And then for a while, nothing happened. And then a new phase of loading began in what we now see as the present um, deformed belt, the northwest-southeast trend. And we can see that began in the late Dunvegan time and really got going in Cascapau uh, time, in other words, in the late Sanamanian, and continues right the way through to the end of the end of the Cretaceous. So there was a huge tectonic change that occurred in late and vacant time. Yeah, ninety degrees is a huge shift. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So within the Cascapau, there is the Doe Creek member, which had similar stacking pattern to the Dunvegan. How did you differentiate the Doe Creek from the Dunvegan? Well, the Doe Creek actually does not have the same stacking pattern as the Dunvegan. <laughs> um, the Doe Creek is, um, it was originally described by Charlie Stelk back in 1958 in a very prescient paper where he interpreted the Doe Creek sandstones to have been deposited 
around the fringes of what, what he considered to be the Dunvegan Delta. In broad terms, that's not totally wrong, but the big change that occurs in the, in the Kaskapau, which includes what I call the A2X interval and, and the, the Doe Creek, which are basically shallow marine ramp deposits. And they're characterized by distinct high stand sediments, which you can see in outcrop in places like Tumbler Ridge and that area, where they have these very shallow water deltas with little sharp-based shore faces and coals and so forth. And you can trace those south and eastwards out onto a, a muddy ramp where there's maybe five or 10 meters of, of biotubated mudstone. And then seaward from that, you suddenly encounter these linear sand bodies, which people call the Doe Creek. And they form units that can be five, 10 meters thick, uh, elongated either north-south or northeast-southwest. And they sit entirely surrounded by mud. If you go landwards, they pass into what I consider to be transgressive and high-stand mud. The sand bodies are invariably sharp-based, and I think these are detached low stands. So when sea level fell, this big, broad embayment that formed uh, on top of the old Dunvegan Delta was left high and dry, and the shoreline jumped out into the sort of central part of this embayment, and all the rivers delivered their sand to the low stand shoreline. And then if you go even further southeast from those sand bodies, they pass out into, into rather thinly bedded mudstones than offshore aspects. And that pattern repeats um, through oh, seven or eight or nine, 10 cycles until you get up into the Puskapé sand. And the Puskapé is an even weirder bird because the Puskapé sands die out towards the west. And they, they're obviously coming from the east. <laughs> so a, a very big tectonic something happens in late Sanamanian time where some kind of tectonic lineament that approximates the Alberta BC border undergoes some movement such that the eastern side of the Alberta side goes up and the British Columbia side goes down. And we can see that the, these Puskapé sandstones are basically stacked one on top of the other, prograding westwards from an unconformity. And I suspect they're eroded from reworked Dunvegan exposed further east on a sort of forebulge. And you can follow those Puskapé sandstones westwards into the foredeep till you go to somewhere near Chetwin where they're, they're disappearing uh, under, underground, then you've got something like 100 meters, more than 100 meters of marine sediments that are mostly mudstone, but as you track them back to the east, they pass into sand. So the entire basin paleogeography changes through 180 degrees. So the, the Doe Creek progrades south and east, and the overlying Puskapé progrades west. <laughs> it's very peculiar. In fact, one of the interesting things is um, we discovered traveling along the Peace River, we discovered a large paleo valley within the, um, within the Doe Creek unit, and it's entirely enclosed by muddy sediments, and yet you have this sand body, which is 20 meters deep, ooh, three or 400 meters wide, completely filled with sandstone with beautiful tidal rhythmites in it, uh, completely detached from anything else. There's, we, we can't find a, um, a low-stand sand body at the end, but it tells us that there were rivers cutting across this muddy Doe Creek shelf, feeding something. When you measure the paleoflow direction in this paleo valley, they're all going to the southeast. But um, it's just one off. You can't find any more. There's a, in, the, in the underlying A2X interval, I found three well logs that contain mysterious 10 or 15 meter thick sandstones enclosed in mud. They don't go, you can't trace them. They're too narrow, tiny little things. But they're obviously some kind of feeder channel 
that formed during these high frequency low stands that left the shelf ultimately flooded with maybe 10 or 20 meters of water and then high and dry in the shoreline. Each time you've got a low stand, the shoreline moves out onto the shelf and produces the linear bars or pods or whatever. But I'm quite sure that from Facey's point of view, the sandstones are all full of swaley cross bedding and ophiomorpha, and they're obviously shore faces. If you had roots on the top, you wouldn't hesitate to call them a shore face, but because the roots have been chewed off, people you know, are a bit hesitant to, to call them what they are, but they're simply detached low-stand sandstones, I'm quite sure of it. So one of the things that we talked about was the owl members, but then there's also the sequences and the shingles. How would you relate each of these to each other? Okay, um, terminology is a bit of a nightmare. Um, but we're trying to deal with natural systems. And of course, natural systems don't know any rules. So who says they're going to be simple? Um, Janik, again, pioneered this. He established the Allo members on a pragmatic basis that he could map these marine mudstone blankets over areas hundreds of kilometers in extent. So they're obviously regional events. Um, I, my work then followed those further up dip and, and realized that they could be tied into, into major subaerial uh, paleosols. So we had evidence of both sea level rise in the marine side of things and then sea level fall in the form of paleosols and paleovalleys. So my work simply reinforced the initial framework that Janik had set up, which was good because you know, if two scientists can agree on things, it probably means they're, they're more likely to be right. Um, within the packages of rock that, that Janik called alum members with those master surfaces bounding them, uh, we were able to recognize smaller scale upward shoaling packages um, that could be mapped at least sub-regionally on, on scales of hundreds, you know, 100 kilometers or more easily. And Janet used the word shingle to denote those packages. And he realized shingles stacked up with, with you know, on-lapping and off-lapping patterns within each uh, element. Now, Janet originally thought that those shingles were primarily of watergenic origins, what he published in, in the kind of classic papers in 1991. But... I started to worry a little bit about that. The fact that they extend over 100 plus kilometers suggests that they may not just be delta lobe switching. And when you look at them, many of those shingles contain sharp bay shore faces, which to me says that some of them were forming during relative sea level fall. So in a way, they start to look like small versions of our members, each of which embodies evidence for rise and fall of, of sea level. So uh, the jury is out, I think. Um, perhaps when we got a little bit more stratigraphy figured out, we might be able to say something a little bit more intelligent about the origin of the shingles. And of course, when you get inside the shingles themselves, they contain even smaller little upper choling packages, which, for want of a better word, um, I just call those parasignatures, which is a, a non-genetic word. It's a shoaling, shoaling package. And who knows, they may be aloe or autogenic, I don't know. I mean, given that some of these and vegan delta seem to be quite strongly river dominated, you'd expect there to be some element of autogenic lobe switching going on. So you can't, you can't eliminate the autocyclic element. What's difficult to prove is that it's allocyclic. Yeah, and keeping in mind that it's river dominated and really influences that is such a, such a key component of the Denvegan. Did you find all the ala members were river dominated? Um, no, they vary. Um, <clears throat> the earlier ones in uh, J and I and H, and to lesser extent G, um, tend to be much more kind of linear, uh, cuspate, smooth, the arcuate shorelines. Whereas as you go further on, um, 
alimembers F and E and D contain these prominent lobate, low stand sand bodies that Janet mapped, and then I found more of them up there. It's an interesting question. I wonder whether it's something to do with water depth. Perhaps the um, geometric considerations suggest that the water in front of the earlier Dunvegan alimembers was deeper. The early Dunvegan was filling a big flexural depicenter, which started up in northeastern British Columbia with some major tectonic loading event. And the Dunvegan prograde's into that space. And if you look at the height of the clinoforms in alimembers J and, and, and I, they're up to about 100 meters high, which suggests that, you know, if you do a bit of decompacting, rule of thumb, about a third, you know, you're looking at at least 100 meters of water. And perhaps that open water allowed waves to approach the shoreline with, with greater energy and more efficiently reworked sediment. As you go down there, there's a systematic decrease in the height of the, of the clinotherm. So as you go down to LMMs E and uh, F, you're getting down around 40 meters or so. When you get down to things like units, uh, LMMs C, and even B, B and A are the skinniest. In LMMs A and B, the, the, the clinoforms are less than 10 meters high. So it seems like the, the Dunvegan filled up all the accommodation available, that the tectonic loading that made the space initially had stopped making space. And it wasn't until the late Dunvegan sort of ABCD time that you get this new phase of substance, which also produces substance that's down in the southwest as opposed to down in the northwest. So it seems like the Dunvegan basically filled up its, its garbage dump with sediment and it became increasingly progradational with time. Because if you don't have to fill so much water, you can build forward faster. So each, each alimember builds forward faster and faster, all the way up to alimember C. And then suddenly, alimembers A and B backstep like crazy. And my student, Mike Hay, did a beautiful job mapping, mapping and figuring out that stratigraphy. The, the A and B part of the Dunvegan, Dunvegan, it defeated me. I was never, never able to figure out exactly what was happening. But Mike puzzled over this for several years and realized that alimembers B and A have a beautifully well-developed backstepping pattern. Um, and it probably reflects a, a diminishing sediment supply to the delta front, which was controlled by an increasing updip subsidence rate, which was gobbling up all the sediments. So all the alluvial sediment was filling that big flexural moat up in BC, and it only left a few grains of sand and mud to go down dip and, and, and form the shoreline. So the Dunvegan was fighting a, a rearguard action throughout the latter stages um, as the poor thing was, was simply running out of sediment and couldn't keep up the subsidence. And of course, that, the, the final gasp of the, of the drowning delta was the flooding surface that goes across the top of Alamember A and ushers in the Cascapau, which is a completely different sedimentary regime. It's a kind of a ramp system in very shallow water in contrast to the Dunvegan, which is clearly the okay. If you look at maps of the Dunvegan, a and B, you can really see that back, backstepping because you'd, if it was prograding, you'd expect it to be deposited a lot further southeast, but it's quite far in the northwest corner of Alberta and BC. Quite so, yeah. It's interesting, actually, when you follow those, the Dunvegan Alamembers C, B, and A, the last three, if you follow them down there, you can trace them actually all the way to the US border, but they're mapped as, as part of the basal blackstone formation, of course. But you can still recognize these little sandy upward shoaling successions. They're only a few meters thick, but they're the very distal fringes of the, of the Dunvegan system, way, way offshore, hundreds, literally hundreds of kilometers away from the nearest tree and root and dinosaur. But they're still there. They're still mappable. During the Dunvegan time, the sea, sea level changes were of known magnitude. 
which affected the interpretation of how the pluvial systems formed. Can you elaborate a bit on the scale of the channels and the type of sea level changes that you would expect associated with this? Um, I'm not sure I'd stick my neck out quite as so as to say the sea level changes were of no magnitude. But um, having said that, I'd be prepared to bet, to bet about $5 that they were in the range of 10 to 30 meters. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, the, it, it's the kind of classic Cretaceous conundrum when you you look at most of the paleo valleys and Cretaceous rocks all up and down the western interior, and most of the paleo valleys are about 30 meters deep. <laughs> it's, it's quite remarkable. So, you know, you could contrast that with, say, ones in the Pennsylvanian, which are typically 60 or 70 meters deep, and it probably somehow scales with sea level change. And, you know, I, I won't hide the fact that I've been a great enthusiast for Cretaceous glacier eustacy for the last 35 years, but, you know, the, the, these ideas surrounding hydro eustacy are getting more persuasive these days. And I suspect in the long run, it'll turn out that, that Cretaceous sea level changes were a combination of hydro eustacy groundwater storage and, and, and small ice caps somewhere down in the Antarctic. But be that as it may, um, if we think about the river systems, the scale of the channels, there are two different types of river system in the Dunbeg. And the most common and the most widespread are these ribbon sandstones. And, and they're lenticular sand bodies in outcrop. If you go up into the canyons up around Chetwin, Tumbler Ridge, that area, you see these things exposed, and they're what I call lemon pit sandstones. They're a, they're a lozenge of sand, typically less than 10 meters thick, less than 50 meters wide, and they pinch out and just simply disappear. Um, internally, they show little evidence of channel migration in the form of accretion surfaces, um, and instead they appear to have been cut and then backfilled, and mainly by vertical accretion. And this is the sort of behavior you would expect for anastomose river systems, because anastomose channels develop from a crevasse a channel which breaks through the levees into a back swamp area during a flood. And it gradually carves out a new channel and it steals the flow so that the, the, the channel downstream loses its competence and tends to plug up with sand. And the new channel is busy for a while until it too loses its gradient advantage and, and it fills up the sediment. These systems are very typical of extremely low river gradients, <clears throat> something like between two and 20 centimeters per kilometer, which is negligible. So those sorts of rivers have so little energy that they, they don't have the, have the energy to meander and erode their banks. So that you produce these interesting and very distinctive anastomosed splitting and joining systems. So why the low gradient? I think it's probably uh, partly a function of the fact that the, the, the alluvial plain was, was subsiding and rotating downwards up there, which tended to flatten the gradient. But also you have to factor in the, the possibility that sea level rise, of course, will tend to flatten the river, river gradients as well. So given that the alluvial succession was largely accumulated during sea level rise in the transgressive and high stand system tracks, that's when base level is being flattened. So you'd expect the, the rivers to respond by becoming anastomosed. During the falling stage, of course, the rivers may slightly steepen their gradients, and that's when the, the valleys get cut and accumulate meandering river systems. So probably a combination of, of updip changes in, in flexural subsidence, which we know accelerated in L members E through A, whereas um, during the more off-lapping stages, sort of J through F, or E even, the, um, 
it may have been sea level rise tending to flatten alluvial gradients. But whatever it was, when you go on the coastal plain, you don't see nice meandering channels. They're mostly these anastomos. That contrasts with the fill of the valleys. And I've already described those. The valley fills are largely amalgamated meandering river point bars, very sandy, um, with channels up to about 10 meters deep and something like 100 to 150 meters wide. And um, they perhaps were a response to a slightly higher alluvial gradient during sea level fall or early rise. But I suspect that that meandering pattern is also partly a reflection of the substrate type. But if you have a valley full of sand, it's not going to be terribly cohesive. So the, the point bars can wiggle around and, and, and migrate laterally much more easily than if they're locked into a thick, sticky mass of mud that is very, very hard to erode. One of the things I've never understood is in some of the, in the up-dip areas in, in British Columbia, you can see what look like huge channel fills that are up to about 20 meters deep, but they don't have a multi-story fill. So they're not a classic valley fill. And you can't map them. Um, and I've puzzled about these. I, I suspect they might actually be a fortuitous exposure of the, some of the major trunk rivers that were feeding the river, feeding the Dunvegan deltas. Um, I say that because you can't relate these big channel fills to any of the major alamember bounding unconformities. So they don't hang off the interfluve surfaces. They seem to just be there and sitting in the middle of a lot of alluvial, muddy stuff. So they maybe have been very large you know, river systems that could have been maybe a kilometer across and 20 meters deep that were feeding the rivers, the major trunk streams. And then there were smaller river systems that crossed the, 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 excuse me, the delta plain uh, fed by local rainfall and so on. So, but they're so, they're rare, these very big rivers and hard to know what to do with them because you can't map them. I could, I could add as a sort of a side, a side comment is that we're mapping some paleo valleys in the, in the older, in the Bow Island down in Southern Alberta. And, and you can see the, the margins of the valleys are complex, wiggly, irregular with little side channels coming off them in places. So we can see this in other systems that the major trunk valleys have feeder, feeder canyons off the side of them, which of course is what they should have. So really, once you identify where the valleys are, it's not necessarily a geographical order. It's more how the gradient was at that time at sea level. So you could see, you know, mixtures uh, across your map area of the valleys and the anastomosing rivers, just depending on um, the accommodation space, right? Yeah, it, it varies in space and in time. So up dip on the coastal plain, you'd expect to find, you know, a widely distributed and rather common small channel fills that were anastomosed. And then cutting into those will be much larger sand bodies that reflect, you know, the incision of the valleys as they gradually nibbled their way down into the into the falling stage deposits, and then eventually backfilled again as sea level rose into the next transgressive systems track. Um, I tend to get berated by my, my my friend Mike Bloom, who of course has worked on the on the Holocene Pleistocene and is able to date the age of the fill of the valleys. And he, he wraps me over the knuckles for, you know, drawing a sequence boundary under the, bo under the bottom of the valley fill, saying, well, you know, there could be all kinds of terrace deposits within, within the valley fill. And I absolutely agree. There are lots of, must be terrace deposits, but if one sandy terrace deposit cuts into another sandy terrace deposit and they're 100 million years old, <laughs> I can't differentiate the ages. <laughs> it's not like, you know, having Pleistocene or Holocene where you can do all kinds of fancy dating techniques and separate things out that are a few thousand years old. So, we are certainly naive in placing sequence boundaries at the bottom of the Sandy Valley fill. It was, it was, you know, the modeling people like Chris Paola have pointed this out that the, 
the valley was never a single entity, a big empty bucket that was then filled in with sand. It was a whole series of shift, shifting channels and bars and terraces cutting down and then backfilling. But given the data sets available to us folks working in the rocks, it's whether it's well log or incomplete outcrop, there's no way you're going to be able to differentiate the, the, the falling stage of the valley fill from the backfilling stage. So, you know, that's the best you can do. Maybe we'll figure out something in future years. Well, what I really want, actually, is someone to give me some 3D seismic over one of these things. But so far, I've never managed to find any or persuade anybody to give it to me for nothing. But that's that would be the way to map these things in detail. I was just about to ask you that if you looked at any 3D seismic. Um, on one of the Dunbegin studies I did, we did look at the 3D seismic. And you could see the tributaries coming off of the feeders going into the delta. You mentioned earlier that you've been working on this for 14 years, and that's 14 years previous to the paper. So how many years total have you been working on the Dunbagan for? <laughs> well, my my dear wife was my, my field assistant in 1984. We got married and, and decided that we would uh, have our honeymoon as a kind of a combination of field trip and traveling. So we put our old Volkswagen van loaded up with stuff in in, uh, in New Brunswick and drove all the way to Dunbagan. <laughs> And spend a month doing field work, and, uh, and then from then on, the next two summers, my wife was my field assistant, and then various students helped me. And we're still dabbling around with it. We keep finding new things to discover. So it's probably been a grief at least thirty years. <laughs> um, we we then from from doing the regional mapping, we started to discover the Paleo Valleys. That led to postdoc work by Jennifer Wadsworth. And then, of course, the Paleo Valleys implied that there had to be Paleo interflues, which then led to the postdoc work of Paul McCarthy. And much later on, we started getting into the um, isotope carbon isotope stratigraphy. That's a, a, an ongoing project. We have an enormous data set of, of carbon isotope samples. So we're, we're trying to fit in the Dunvegan into a kind of global um, carbon isotope signal, for, from, from which I hope we will eventually determine a sea level signal. That can be matched on a global scale. So that's that's work that's in progress. Oh, that's great. Well, I feel like I could ask you Dunvegan questions all day long. You're such a so knowledgeable on it and have such great information. So thank you for, I know it's just the tip of the iceberg, but thank you for sharing what you did. I think it's a really interesting subject. My great pleasure, Maureen. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.